0: This is a download from Force Migration Online. To find out more, please go to www.forcemigration.org.
1: Let's talk about one of Oxfam's most famous and difficult um, experiences, which you were incredibly intimately involved in, which was the Great Lakes emergency and the Rwanda genocide. Yeah.
0: Um, how did how did you get involved in that? Um, I think I already said that in uh, in mid '93 I took a job in Oxfam House, um, and uh, my job title was emergencies officer. I was recruited by uh, one of the people who I persist in thinking of as one of Oxfam's great men. It was next option. Um, uh, who I think did a lot for Oxfam, certainly did a lot for me, um, and has remained a friend. Um, and the Emergencies department, uh, which had just been formed then, um, had about six of us, I think. Um, and there were two or three emergency support personnel, ESPs, um, just, just to give an idea of what's happened since. Yeah, when, when I left the humanitarian department at the end of 2004, there were, I think, 112 people in the department. Of whom forty-eight, I think, were HSP humanitarian Sport personnel by then. So, you know, the, the department and Oxfam's humanitarian work had grown enormously over that period, and I was, you know, privileged to be part of that. I suppose. Um, but when I came into the department, I uh, I was the French speaker, um, which gave me uh, choice places uh, like Zaire as it was then. Um, and so in 93, I went into Zaire, but I also went to Rwanda, where there was a, a huge um, population of people who had been displaced, internally displaced persons, IDPs, as we persist in calling them. Um, and we had a program there. So I was in Rwanda a couple of times in 93, and so knew the place and the team and the program and the country and a bit about it. And um, when the... Um, when the genocide started, I was actually on holiday at the beginning of April, 1994. Um, but you know, came back a couple of days later, having sort of started watching all these images on, on television and <clears throat> stuff that doesn't need talking about on this tape particularly. Um, and because it was my, you know, one of my geographical areas of concern. I went with a colleague to um, to Bujumbura in Burundi um, because Kigali was not a place to go into at the time. In fact, we were still trying Mm. to get people out of it at that stage. Um, To to uh, we went to Bujumbura to Burundi to uh, to I mean, I suppose to have some sort of proximity to Rwanda, but also to to deal with refugees who some of who were managing to get into northern Burundi. And we uh, we designed a program there that I left my colleague behind to try and manage. Remember a conversation with you, John. Um, I was sitting um, on the ground next to a Land Rover with a sat phone. I think I I think I took Oxfam's first ever mobile, I mean, portable sat phone with me to to Burundi. I remember a conversation between us about Oxfam wanting to call it genocide, and uh, and you were mandated to talk to me and see whether you could convince me that we ought to do it or find out what my view of it was from being, if you like, next door. Um, and so that's when all that was happening. Um, and I, I should
1: say, my, my recollection is actually almost the opposite. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Because my recollection of it is that you made that phone call um, when the word genocide had barely been mentioned. Mm. And that it was that what you were saying, and you correct me if you're wrong, was that you were basically looking at and counting the the numbers of people who were coming over the border and you said there are almost no Tutsis coming over the border. Mm. And that it was I'm not saying it was you who first said this was Seemed to be a case of genocide, but it was—it um, was actually quite news to me. I mean, it was something which made me sit up.
0: Yeah, um, I, I had happened to be in Rwanda when the um, the coup in Burundi started. I, I use the word "started" because it went on for many years. It kind of happened, um, and um, and something like three hundred and fifty thousand people came across the border. Uh, and It was one of my first experiences of seeing that happen, um, and you know walking somewhere and seeing you know, tens of thousands of people I mean, literally standing around wondering what to do next and, and thinking right well this is this is what the job of doing emergency work for Oxford means this, this means you know me not standing around wondering what to do next, but actually doing something about it um, and I suppose we expected that something similar would happen in Rwanda that you know tens hundreds of thousands of people would. Would flee from what was happening in Rwanda and come across the border. And in fact, there were very few of them. Um, uh, oh, I don't know, 20, 30,000 maybe in total, spread across the whole of the border region. Um, it seemed like that number anyway, <coughs> which is very few. Um, and um, one day we went down to the border, um, it's a staggeringly beautiful place, and the Burundian immigration customs people. Advised us not to go any further, but asked whether we could help somebody. And there were a couple of people who'd, who'd escaped from Rwanda, and there were two people who'd been cut up with machetes, and um, uh, you know, were survivors of attempts to kill them. Um, taking them to a I think it was an ICRC hospital in so um, sort of then beginning to realise what was actually going on, and. Um, it was at that time that the Oxfam came out and called it genocide and I, I'm sure I didn't start the word if you like but I probably provided the observation that it, that, that set people thinking about it maybe um, and I then came back to oxfam house once that program was sort of designed if you like and and funded and uh, and took up my place as emergencies officer in the humanitarian in the emergencies department and um, it was so different then than it is now I mean I, I did on my own what there would now be a reached half a dozen people doing i mean i I was reading all of the material i was I was doing all the filing you know I, I produced four filing cap four filing drawers full of material i every week I was expected to write a program update, and I remember sitting up till midnight one even one thirty in the morning every week mm. it, because everybody expected it on their desk on Tuesday morning and was on Monday night I spent doing that had a key to the door which we don't have anymore. Um, And I remember you know photocopying it and walking around the building in the middle of the night and putting it on people's desks and we didn't have email of course. Um, It was an incredibly difficult and stressful time. Uh, And just the scale of what was happening, what was coming in, and just reading the endless reports of atrocities and um, none of this did any good to my personal relationships, I I hasten to add. it it was well, I mean it, it wasn't hard working seven days a week you know 18 hours a day because it was so utterly absorbing and it was so utterly compelling in the sense of what needed you know needing to do things and and the struggle to do things and there was all the advocacy work and um, and, and of course I was you know, I was right at the centre of it I was doing endless radio interviews and. Uh, Know, endlessly writing, reading people's copy or writing things for you know for the press and so on, which you must remember because you were in the post yeah. office.
1: I suppose yeah, I do remember, but what I also remember was 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 how there was this strange sort of hiatus between, you know, what what you observed at the border and an Oxfam putting out a press release. Um, we put this press release out which said Oxfam fears that genocide is happening in Rwanda and I think that was the first time that, certainly the first time an NGO had said yeah. such a strong thing. Yeah. Um, and it was a very big thing. There was a lot of discussions I remember within within Oxford about whether we were right or not. And we absolutely were right. But I I remember the incredible frustration of trying to get journalists interested in it. Because I think at the time there were the was it the elections in, in South, South Africa.
0: Africa all the journalists were in were, were in South Africa watching the elections that's right and it was it was almost impossible
1: to get to to talk to journalists who were interested but I do remember one talking to one journalist um, and he he was very he said what evidence have you got that you know there is genocide happening and I used your experiences and I talked to him about the lack of people coming over the border mm. and <clears throat> yes I remember that you know you'd seen people who've been mutilated and how very few people seemed to be Tutsis, and of course there were reports of bodies coming down the rivers as well mm. but it wasn't enough it was you know he he was basically saying well that's actually an absence of evidence yes. um... and I, I remember feeling very very dispirited about it and I suppose um... I suppose, you know, I look back and I I always think, well, could I have done more? Could I have really pushed it? Could I have phoned lots more journalists? Could I have really made more of a hue and cry over it? And I think I was, um, I was dispirited by the lack of reaction. And I think possibly also I, I was still influenced by this ambivalence within Oxfam about whether we were right, about whether it, it was actually genocide, and there were all sorts of discussions about the legal meaning of genocide And, and
0: next option, no doubt weighing in heavily on that one uh, yeah, indeed <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But we, you know, it was it, it
1: was it was very difficult, it was only really when the journalists were coming came back, you know, and it was a terrible thing to say you know, that they could only cope with one big African story at the time,
0: well, they, well, what they had was they had a fantastically positive African story, and, yes. and the will not to have a, a terrible African story at the same time, I think was probably quite strong there as well. I and mean, we've come across similar sorts of things. But I, I, you know, I, I think it was one of those seminal moments in lots of ways, including in terms of our relations with the media, uh, all the stuff around Rwanda. That um, you know, our our ability to. To leverage coverage—that's a whole phrase. Sorry, but I mean to get Mm. to get coverage. Our ability to get our analysis there, uh, our—I suppose—our public profile, you know, I mean, was very significantly changed around that time. I think in lots of ways, Um, it was—it was extraordinary as well how Oxfam House kind of got taken over, and I think rightly by. The, all the events in the Great Lakes. There were a lot of extreme difficulties between the emergencies department and the, the desks who were technically responsible mm. uh, for things and it's not worth going into either the personalities or the ins and the outs of the arguments but it is worth saying that there's a tension there about if you like the right of the emergency worker to weigh in somewhere where there are long-term development programs you know, has always been and continues to be contentious in a variety of different ways. You know, we manage it better and worse in lots mm. of ways, but you know, the basic issue has has never gone away and never will go away because it's a it, it is an issue that exists out there, and we we struggled with it. And I think there was so there were so many. I'm looking for an adjective to put with the word emotions and I can't mm. find one. There were so many emotions that we mm. were all living with in our different ways. Um, that made it really difficult <laughs> had to knuckle down to to sensible yes. discussions. And I remember some extraordinarily unproductive discussions. I also remember some extraordinarily unproductive times sitting in these huge coordination meetings where you know I was kind of the centre of attention in a way, because I, you know, knew most Had been there. I mean, I—if you like—I—I was the person who was bringing most information into the meeting, Mm. and having to do it day after day after day, and the ill discipline that we had in running it like that. I mean, you know, that's Mm. something where we've changed Mm. quite a lot. We—we've got that kind of thing much better under control now, so that there isn't this ability for you know, also to pour a hundred people into a room, most of whom have no reason for being there. You know, they can get the minutes afterwards or something, but you know, everybody had to be part of it, and those who weren't felt, frankly, felt marginalised. And I suppose in some ways they were. But again, I'm not apologetic because I think that 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 the organisation needed to devote itself mm. to that crisis. I think when we tried to kind of ape that in a in a way over the Balkans, I think we got it wrong and we did too much of that. Uh, we got carried away. But I think at the time of of the crisis in the Great Lakes, we were right.
1: Um, I remember you're right about the emotional stress. I mean, I'm not, you know, I was thinking it brought it back as you were saying it, how the first Anne McIntosh came yeah. out and had seen the most awful, awful things and had, you know, escaped finally across the border and had left people, friends behind. And um, there were our own staff still in. Inside Rwanda, yeah. in in the capital, who were in hiding, yeah. and almost impossible to know, were well, absolutely impossible to know what was happening to them.
0: But do you do? You, I don't know whether you remember in the relatively early days after I came back from from Bujumbura, One of the things that was happening was that the deputy country representative Anne's uh, deputy mm. was a woman called Esther Majumayo, Yeah. and Esther and her family were. Taking refuge in a convent in Kigali, mm. and we could sometimes get through on the phone. And I mean, those those phone contacts were very precious to us, and I'm sure they were to Esther as well. I spent a lot of time with Esther over the over the months and a year or two, maybe after afterwards. Um, and I think they were very precious to And I and I remember distinctly the day that. Um, the Hamway came and took her husband out and killed him in front of the door, in earshot of all of them. And I I, mean, I wasn't on that phone call with Esther that day, but I remember that news mm. being brought into the meeting and, and our our sense of shock and helplessness at that. And it's not that we hadn't realised before, but you know, Esther was somebody who a lot of people knew and you know had a good reputation, and um, you know, a lot of us knew her and you know I learned other even worse things in some ways that happened to members of her family but you know to know that she had witnessed the murder of her husband and her children mm. had witnessed that I mean really brought it home to us in a very uh, very immediate way um, very, diffi- very, very difficult times for the organization very very difficult times for individuals and Anne McIntosh who you mentioned I mean I I haven't seen her for years now, but I know that for for quite a few years she had not got over that experience. Mm. Um, got an MBE for it, but whatever that does for you. We um, on with the narrative, maybe. Um, at a certain point um, in early to mid June, so about six weeks later or yeah. uh, or so, um, we decided that we needed to kind of go and have another go to Rwanda. And a couple of colleagues, uh, Paul Sherlock and Kathy Mears, were in southern Uganda, trying, uh, making little trips into the parts of, of Rwanda that had been liberated. If that's the right word by the RPF, by the the, the, the Rwanda Pop, uh, Patriotic Front, that have since become the government. And I went back to bujumbura to try and go in from the south into the parts that was still held by the old Rwandan government, and made several trips in mm-hmm. in there, and uh, tried tried. Uh, tried. To, to to work out what to do with some, I mean there were many people who were displaced you know all along the road and around the villages in the south and there seemed to be a stalemate at the time um, but suddenly that stalemate broke and um, it became impossible to to go into the south because the RPF had started to overrun it and the fighting was happening there and so I took a car and I an amazing experience I drove myself from Bujumbura across the border to Avira and then up the escarpment to Bukavu, and then along Lake Kivu to Goma and one of our colleagues uh, was there um, I suppose on a sort of uh, learning exercise, she was a relatively inexperienced emergency person, Adam Accord at the time there was a little program, there were about 900 Tutsi refugees who were in a camp there, Um, one of the best refugee camps I've ever seen It had so much attention at that stage and she and I started going daily inside into Rwanda from, from Goma and, uh, and in the end I started going in on, in on my own because it didn't feel safe enough for um, Anna to feel comfortable I don't think and um, getting yes, he, within sight of Kigali one day and meeting the mayor of Kigali with his cronies he's one of the people who's been at the genocide court in the uh, international tribunal um, sort of fleeing from Kigali, and we could sort of see the city burning, sort of over the just over the hills. Finding people in the most extraordinarily appalling conditions. Um, many people who've been displaced for several years from the pre from their previous displacement. Um, uh, I mean, it's stuff that's impossible to describe, really. But what what happened one day was, um, we decided to stay overnight. Uh, And parked in a school, and you know, got the headmaster's permission to sleep on the desks. And we were woken up um, just before six in the morning by shooting. And um, there were already around, by our calculations, something like two hundred thousand people who were on the move and in this area. And uh, what was happening was the RPF was advancing, and you know, we're going to take over. And people literally got out of their beds and ran out of their doors, leaving their doors open, grabbing their kids in a hot hill something if they could and running, the hillsides were covered with people running away um, and so standing watching the numbers just grow in front of us, they had been 200,000, I remember every day that I could, coming back and getting on the sat phone from my comfortable hotel in Goma, the Karibu the Hotel and um, getting on the phone to Oxfam House every day, saying, you know, 200,000, 300,000, 400,000. I think, you know, I'm, I'm convinced it's half a million people on the move. but also saying, and I'm, conv- and I'm convinced that the numbers of people who have been killed were going up in the same way, and saying to, to a, a disbelieving Oxfam House, you know, in the end, you know, there are a million people who have been killed here. Yeah. And people saying, nah. you know, probably a hundred or two hundred thousand. It's easy to mistake numbers, and I and arguing, saying, you know, and I have to so say I was proved right. And I don't know how I was getting those numbers, but I, you know, I'm convinced that however it was, yeah, that it was the right information. Everybody else nowadays is as well, and um, a disbelieving Oxfam House as well. I didn't want to do the things I wanted to do. Again, I'm, just my recollection and. I don't
1: know when this was but I do remember you talking about, I think 800,000 and again I... I, (laughs) my recollection is that you were talking about that earlier Mm. and that again was one of the planks by which we argued that a genocide had occurred Mm. because I think even at an early stage you were saying there are no Tutsis here mm. and you had actually worked out, and I think to remember you actually said, I did it on the back of an envelope. Mm. You had worked out or remembered what the population of Tutsis yeah. was in Rwanda, yeah. previous to that, and you said there there are no Tutsis here. Yes. So you can therefore surmise that something like 800,000 people yeah. have been killed. Mm. And again, I think, I remember Saying that to journalists and and just not getting, I mean, complete disbelief. There was no belief well, it, it at is, all, and I it had is to incredible, say. Well, isn't it? And they said, "How do you know? How do you know that? How do you know that?" And I said, "We're not because Morris is there and he's not seeing any Tutsis, and there were eight hundred thousand in the country." And th- again, you know, they couldn't they couldn't accept that. It was yeah. just a hunch. Yeah. there was no evidence
0: at the time of course now it is accepted I mean, yeah, it, interesting stuff about our ability to to be you know, good at this I and mean, I think it's one of the things that I always was good at was you know, what in the humanitarian business we call assessment and I kind of always feel sorry that i have <laughs> left it behind and become a bureaucrat but um you know i I don't know how I did that. I don't remember doing it. I, I know I still possess on my computer the reports that I was writing at that time. But I remember every day coming back and saying, "Look, you know, I have I have driven back from a, an area where there are four hundred thousand people and they have nothing, and it's cold. I mean, it's cold and it's wet, and, and I want blankets." And Oxfam House's response was, "Well, we'll let you know tomorrow." I said. I don't want to know tomorrow. I want to know now. <laughs> because, you know, if we're going to do it, we've got to do it now. And say, well, how are we going to monitor the distribution? And my answer to that was, we're not. We're going to give people blankets because they need them. And we aren't going to monitor the distribution because when we go back the next day, they won't be there. They'll have moved on to somewhere else. You know, and this whole thing mm. going on and finally ending up in Gisenyi on the border. And by then, the RPF could take over all of Rwanda. and um, A little diversion. I, I travelled for a few days with. Um, I think it was the minister of social affairs or something who was my kind of guide in the, in the car. I was driving but uh, he was the guide. We, we stopped somewhere one day and um, we were surrounded by Rwandan army at this road junction and uh, we had a discussion, where are you going, why are you going, all the rest of this and off we, you know, and thank you very much and we're off. And as I put the car into gear um, this soldier jumped on the back of the car so I pulled on the handbrake, knocked it out of gear and uh, leaned out and said, "I'm sorry, we can't give you a lift." And he said, "Go." And I said, "I'm sorry, I can't give you a lift." And our rules were, you don't carry people with guns, and you don't carry belligerents. Uh, very sensible, quite right. And uh, and I said to him, "I'm sorry, I can't do it." And I'm, you know, I'm not allowed to. And he said, "I've got a gun, and you are allowed to, and you're going to, because I want to go the same way you're going." And I got out of the car and I said, to, and he was you know standing on the bumper at the back, hanging onto the roof rack Um, and I said to him, I'm sorry I can't and he said, you're going to go and I reached in and I turned off the engine and he lost his temper and he jumped off and he cocked his gun and he pointed it at me and I was convinced for a moment that I was about to be shot, well I was about to be shot, I'm Mm. sure now I was about to be shot and um, luckily one of his mates just knocked the gun out of the way and said don't do it and said to me, get in the car, and go, quickly, and sort of can't, I don't know, kind of this guy back. It was the closest I ever came to, you know, doubling mm. in the cause, I suppose. And um, and again, it was one of those things that made us think about security. Yes, we don't carry belligerents, but frankly, if the man with the gun says you do, you do. <laughs> you know, another, you know, it was my experience, but it was one of those things that Oxfam absor- absorbed, if you like. Anyway, it ended up in Gisenyi. Gisenyi town had every car in Rwanda in it. Um, it was a small town that had... Well, again, I estimated a million people in it and nobody believed mm. me, and suddenly we had these little tiny coordination meetings in Gomer every evening. There was Arsenal, MSF Holland, and ICRC. I think there was only the three agencies. We used to sit around, you know, everybody bring a bottle of coke and throw a package of fags on the table and the coordination meeting. was all sitting around in somebody's, somebody's hotel room for, a, you know, for an hour and discussing what we'd all seen and thought that day and what our headquarters were saying and uh, somebody came from the ICRC and said um, "Oh, by my estimation 50,000 people have just crossed the border the next, the next post up, sort of up in the hills and we went uh uh-uh. uh... and we thought we had a couple more weeks to plan mm. we, you know, we'd all decided that it would happen but we had two weeks and suddenly it was Wednesday afternoon Wednesday evening and we didn't and we all went down to the border early on Thursday morning and the border was just full of people and cows and children and uh, cars and just the most unbelievable. And we we stood just back from the border, and every day on Thursday and on Friday and then you know, Saturday, which was only half a day of people moving across the border, we compared notes and we decided a million people came across the border, mm. and nobody believed us, but we were right. Goma is a small town, two hundred thousand people, maybe with an extra million extra, um, many of whom were in a pitiable state. It was not a pretty sight. People were just dying on the roundabout. There was um, unsanitary conditions, shall we say. Uh, there was not water. There was. It was. It was bad. Um, uh, and there's nowhere to stay. It's volcanic rock. I mean, all the stuff that people know. And um, called up a colleague from. We came off in Bridgend on the Sunday morning. Um, Mike huge. he and I jumped in the car and we went and located a couple of the places where uh, camps, Katali Camp in particular, uh, where that ended. We found that that day, um, and they turned into <coughs> you know camps of three hundred thousand people. I mean, they unbelievable size and unbelievably unsuitable places as well uh, for a variety of reasons that are directly related to this kind of storytelling that we're doing. Um, and I stayed there and I did uh, I don't know what I did endless stuff all day <laughs> and then in the evening getting on the sat phone and talking to Oxfam House and then sitting down and writing a report and sending it off over, over the sat, satellite phone and, um, and I don't know how many interviews I did but I do know that they were continuous I mean I remember doing Know, evening television in New Zealand followed by morning television in California. Kind of, videos. You know, I, I have no idea how much I talked about that. And um, the journalists started pouring in, and I was doing lots of you know journalist interviews as well. And I remember sitting down with three journalists, I think from the Daily Mail, and the Daily Telegraph, and the Financial Times or something. You know, and they were another load who I'd insisted on talking to together because there were too many interviews to be done. And um, one of them asked me about, uh, I don't know, it was the Times, it wasn't the Financial Times. One of them asked me about the UN. How was the UN doing? And the UN, frankly, wasn't doing terribly well. And I said, um, well, not, they're not doing, really, not doing very well. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, they appear to only have one gear and it's slow. And it became a headline. And I got <laughs> told off by Oxfam House for saying that about colleagues in the UN. And, um, Baroness, what's her name? Um, Chalker, Chalker. Linda Chalker used used the phrase in Parliament a couple of a couple of days later, and, and I got forgiven suddenly. but um, and and Oxford has put a lot of pressure on me to stay because I was doing such a good media job. Um, program people were starting to pour in, and every day I said I can't do any more of this. I can't, you know, it was five weeks by then, and I said I can't do any more of this. And one day I got on a. I went down the airport which I knew reasonably well. Hmm. I, knew the, I knew the blokes who were on customs there because they'd been on the border into Rwanda before the border closed when everybody came across. Um, and, uh, and I hitchhiked a ride on an empty ICRC plane um, that they brought some food in I think and they were go back to Nairobi. Well, I, I had a choice, I could go to Bangi in the Central African Republic or I could go to Nairobi. So I chose Nairobi not surprisingly. Um, and and uh, the back of a Hercules they sat me in and it was empty and there was only the pilot and the coat oh. and the navigator or whatever and it was fucking freezing up there and I spent the whole journey to Nairobi running round the back of this Hercules to keep warm <laughs> um, and then I got myself and I landed in Nairobi and I bought myself a ticket on the plane back and I you know I I, I just know I did these things I can't remember doing it I sat around for hours in in Nairobi airport until my plane left and, and I and I got on the bus at Heathrow, and I got dropped at in Summertown, The bus mm. came round, the Ferry Road. They didn't have anybody to drop in in town. It was going round to Gloucester Green the easy way, and it dro- and I and I walked up to Oxfam House um, off the bus with my I don't know, I had a rucksack or something, and um, and I walked in, and I went upstairs to the emergencies department, and. Um, somebody who i would never seen before looked up and said uh, hello can I help you and I said uh, yes I'm Morris <laughs> and this <girl> woman <laughs> said oh you're Morris and nobody knew I was coming back because I had just decided to call it quits and, mm. and I think again there was stuff that Oxfam learned from that that you just have to care about people a bit better and I know I was doing something that needed doing but at personal expense to myself that at that point I could no longer take and I'm still pleased that I Didn't obey orders, and I took it upon myself to get myself out of there because I, it was a very traumatic experience, and it's one that I haven't got over yet. And I would have been worse had I stayed longer. I was at the end of my tether, and I did, um, I did ten days of media work, and then I went on holiday for three weeks, Um, two weeks, and then went on with, you know, being part of it. You know, I suppose, through until beginning of '96 or something. When you got
1: back, I mean. You'd evacuated your yourself. Did, yes. Did you get into trouble for that, or did were people understanding?
0: Uh, I don't think anybody dared say anything. I mean, I, in a way, I was. I mean, I. You know, it sounds an odd thing to say about yourself, but I mean, you know, I had done such a lot for the organisation, that I was almost beyond criticism, and I was mm. such a valuable resource. I mean, you know, I was one of. A handful of people, and I mean literally a handful of people, maybe less than a handful, who had been inside Rwanda during the genocide, had watched the refugee movement, who had, you know, reported on it on a daily basis as it happened, who'd been in Goma counting people across. I mean, you know, there nobody else had done that, and you know, I was an incredibly valuable resource to the organisation, and I was clearly so. I don't want to use the word traumatised, but I was so overwrought and mm. overawed by the whole experience that I think anybody who had tried to criticise me would have been more insensitive than it's possible to be and still be an, uh, an employee of Oxford. Um It was a very, very, very hard experience for me as an individual and I I don't want to go into what what it was for Oxfam, but it it was a seminal moment for Oxfam as well in terms of public profile but you know I crossed on that journey with Nick Stockton who was the emergencies coordinator and and went out there and you know sat down and wrote a program proposal for eight million pounds and you know nobody had ever thought of doing anything like that on that scale before you know 800,000 was beyond Thinking about and you know and he he designed a program. I mean, I couldn't have done it. I was you know I was beyond as he put it to me. You know I'm, my nose was too too close to the glass. I couldn't see what was going on anymore. And for that reason alone, I was right to come out. I mean I'd lost my ability to mm-hmm. to be an effective program person at that stage. And um, um, you know Nick went in there. You know. Fresh is hardly the word because he'd been working on it as well, back back in Oxfam House and you know, and he went and he shaped a programme that changed the face of Oxfam's humanitarian work. Undoubtedly it did. And and we did a, an amazing job. Um, not just there, but you know, we'd be doing it on the Tanzania side and we were doing it further south in the Carbon and Burundi and you know, we were providing clean water in a way that nobody else yeah. in the world could manage to do for nearly a million people. And it was a fantastic thing yeah. to do. If you've enjoyed this download, you might like to listen to other podcasts of Force Migration online. wwwforcemigrationorg podcasts.